0: Welcome to the I Am Woman Project. I am your host, Catherine Plano. I am a creative soul adventurer, a modern-day alchemist, and on a mission to empower the conscious people of this world, those who seek to learn, grow, understand, and become the very best version of themselves that they can be. Every week, we have thought leaders, Change instigators and inspirational human beings from around the globe that offer you profound teachings and recent discoveries from the world of neuroscience, positive, cognitive, and spiritual psychology to help you build wealth, health, love, and achieve lasting transformation. So, join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning connection and resilience into your life and your business. As a way to thank our guests for their time, energy and wisdom, we would love to demonstrate our appreciation for gratitude and admiration. We would love to hear from you as to what was your key takeout from today's session by writing a review in Apple Podcast with our guest's name and insight. And when you do... Please make sure to take a photo and send your photo to support at catherineplano.com.au and you will receive a one hour life coaching session for free valued $500 to help you change your life for the better or to help you get unstuck if you are currently going through a transition or if you need a little motivation. Thank you. This week, as always, we have a super, super, super amazing guest for you. We have the beautiful Elise Lunen. Elise is a writer and editor living in Los Angeles with her husband, Rob, and their sons, Max and Sam. While she's co-written 11 books, including five New York Times bestsellers, she's currently writing her first book about women and patriarchy, What We Police in Ourselves and Each Other, which is coming out in October 2022. Previously, she was the CCO of Goop, the lifestyle and e-commerce company established by Gwyneth Paltrow in 2008. While at Goop, Elise co-hosted the Goop podcast and the Goop Lab on Netflix and led the brand's content strategy and programming, including the launch of a magazine with Condé Nast and a book in print. For the podcast, she interviewed hundreds of thought leaders, doctors and experts from around the globe. Prior to Goop, she was the editorial project's director of Condé Nast Traveller and before Traveller, she was the editor-at-large and ultimately deputy editor of Lucky Magazine where she also served as the on-air spokesperson, appearing regularly on shows like Today, Good Morning America and The Early Show. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. So today I have a very special guest for you. Have the beautiful Elise Lunen. Welcome to I Am Woman Project.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I am super excited. As I was saying to Elise, as soon as I found out she was coming on the show, I was super super excited. And the way that we love to start the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to share her unique story. So, Elise, tell us what inspired you to do what you do today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Montana, um, which is not a densely populated state, and I, um, to that end, I it, we. Lived on the outskirts of town, the small sort of liberal arts college town, and I lived in the woods and um, my mom was sort of an early global warning um, advocate ahead of her time, and she just really didn't want to waste gas driving us in and out of town. We were about 20 minutes outside of town, and so I, I grew up a little isolated in nature with books. And that's really how I learned how to form my world and how I learned to fashion the world and understand the world and parse it was really as a reader and um, as as a bit of a an outsider. And, and that, I think, is what, you know, my brother's a book editor. I grew up in magazines thinking I would go into books originally. And then I got a job in magazines, ended up at Goop. Running that content team, um, always wrote books for other people on the side. I think eleven or twelve of them. I've lost count. And so that's where, where I am now. Where I'm like I'm sort of choosing to um, step out from beneath behind the curtain a little bit and write my own book. But I think it's really you know I think a lot of writers are readers, and um, which is pretty probably sounds like common sense, but it's actually surprising. Sometimes I'll meet someone who's like, I really want to write a book. And I'm like, well, what do you love? Like, what have you loved reading? And they're like, oh, I don't really read. <laughs> then why do you want to write a book? Um, but but that's really, that's really sort of, I think, where I came from, which was a world of nature and a world of words.
0: Mm, I love that. And I'm curious, Elise, what was your favorite book? One that was very um momentum for its time? Mm, It's an interesting question.
1: I I think as we all are having this moment now, I'm like, oh wow, I read a lot of um white male authors as a child. And I read the canon and I read, you know, everything that you're supposed to read. Um as a child, um, and into college, I um sort of started reading um, I mean, I read women as a, as a child, but I loved, I was like fixated on like this book, Spartina and, um, which is, and I loved books about like men in the midst of like white men in the midst of their midlife crises. Like that was my favorite topic, which is actually really funny. Um, Brideshead Revisited was one of my favorite books. I'm finding that I, my secret favorite book is one that I <laughs> I have in common. I don't know if it's a favorite book, but I rem- it was very, um, it, it affected me in an indelible way was, did you ever read um, Jean? M., I'm going to mispronounce her name. Owl, Owls um, clan of the cave bear series, because I did when I was a little kid. And it's funny because it keeps popping up. Like Roxanne Gay talks about reading um, clan of the cave bear and the mammoth hunters. Um, so does Maggie Nelson. I'm trying to think of other people where I'm like, huh, I'm not alone. And and like loving these highly sexual books about um, like our prehistory. But I read anything. I read everything. Anything I could get my hands on, I would read.
0: Mm. And so what is the inspiration of your book that you are currently working on?
1: So my book, which is coming out, um, it's such a long process to write a book. Um, it feels impossibly long, and yet it also kind of flies by. Comes out in October of 2022. It's about women and the patriarchy, and specifically what we police in ourselves and then police in each other. And I think that what I was observing within myself and particularly looking around here in the United States at sort of where we all professed we wanted to be in terms of representation and more feminine values being expressed, you know, in the world, in society and in, in culture and politics, and then sort of where we were at, and then thinking about how we thinking about my own career progression and sort of where I myself had found hurdles. And I was like, this doesn't add up. It's not that there's a a lot of oppressive men. There's certainly many oppressive patriarchal men, but there's something else happening here. And so I really wanted to understand that the ways in which patriarchy as a system keeps us pendant and small and the ways in which we can be very patriarchal, against each other. And I've certainly felt that in myself. It's something I've witnessed amongst other women and, and with friends where there's sort of this, like, we can sometimes have, like do an ad hominem character attack. Um, when really there's something about the behavior that is, that we don't like, and it feels very reactive and emotional in a way that's, um, I really wanted to understand that. Like, what is, what is it that she is doing and why is it bothering me? And is it something that I, that's bothering me because I would never allow myself to do that. And so that's sort of like the root of what I'm trying to explore, thinking about it in the construct of something like, um, here as we're in the midst of this big racial reckoning around, um, systemic racism and white supremacy and how we think about that as a system that benefits some of us more than others and the ways in which we unknowingly participate in it and uphold it rather than like, oh, I'm racist or I'm a misogynist or I'm sexist. Um, It's less about that. And it's more about the ways in which we sort of unconsciously act within these systems in ways that are not to our supposed best interest so I don't know if that was a clear explanation but the the overall structure is sins it's about the seven deadly sins and the and specifically women oh it does resonate (laughs) a lot of things
0: oh I know it does and when you're talking about a system I mean I talk about that I'm currently running a program and it's all women in leadership and it's it's really interesting some of the conversations have come up because this system and have been around for, you know, let's say 50-odd years and quite and depending on what systems we're talking about. Um, but these systems have been in place for such a long time and when you're trying to shift the paradigm of a system, that in itself takes time because that's almost like a, uh, a very strong foundation. These are a lot of the conditionings, unconscious conditioning, unconscious biases that a lot of the time people are not even aware of. And they just behave oh, in a certain not. way.
1: Yes, exactly. And then it's sort of this, like, you feel icky, but you don't exactly know why. And then you want to ascribe it to her behavior rather than sort of understanding or lifting the hood on your own emotions. Um, and and then I think it's sort of this, this wash of shame. And I, as a, a, you know, white middle-class woman raised sort of white, as a white in a white middle class like upper middle class family um even though my parents were sort of progressive alternative hippies, the cultural program it's in the water right like this is the this is where we swim and this is what we're exposed to, but there's so much so much cultural programming for girls around being nice and not being confrontational and never really learning how to assert ourselves and we're aggressive. It's just part of human nature. Boys, girls alike are aggressive and, and need a ways and avenues in which to express that. And so with boys, it's more overt and that's allowed, you know, whether it's, you don't want your kid beating up other kids, obviously, but there's more visible aggression. Whereas with girls, there's this conditioning of like, you need to be nice and you need to be a good girl and all of these things. And so the aggression Gets subverted and it goes underground and it comes out as alliance building and gossiping and backstabbing and behaviors that I know we find deeply shameful and terrible and that don't feel like in alignment with those values of like, oh, we're good, we're good, nice girls, but we're just human. And I think there are so many sex differences that are culturally programmed as, oh, this is the way things are. This is how this is how we are boys and girls are different and girls gather and boys hunt. And so many of these, those things have been disrupted, um, by anthropologists. And yet the, the myths are so sticky. You know, it's like, I laugh every time I see a story about, um, Dean Snow, you know, uncovering that all the paleolithic art in the caves of France or wherever I'm probably getting the details of this wrong, but like, Oh, actually we thought they were painted by men. They were painted all by women or when they, discover, they just discovered um, um, burial sites, they re-excavated these burial sites in the Amazon, 26 warriors, they assumed they were all men, well, it turns out 10 of them were women. So, you know, there are all these ideas, even this idea that we were more hunter than gatherer, which has been disproven, like we were primarily foraging, gathering, gathering sort of partnership style, allo parenting, taking care of each other's young, you know, dividing and, and, and dividing the workload, those myths are so sticky, you know? And so I think women, it's like, we're told like, this is just how it is. This is who you are in your very nature in a way that feels wrong or off, but we've never really been, it's never been modeled for us how to be any other way. And so we're deeply uncomfortable we're sort of deeply uncomfortable with both paths,
0: you know? Mm. And you know what's bubbling up? As you were speaking, I was just thinking that when you were saying that, you know, boys are more overt and girls are being taught to be nice, uh, that what kind of bubbles up for me is the the implication of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're talking about self-sabotage. We're talking about self-worth. We're talking about people-pleasing, which is, this is a whole another another. Um, we can go down completely different pathway here, um, because I see that play out as well because of this whole uh, conditioning of you can't speak up, you can't say this, you can't be this way, and so forth. What are your thoughts about that? Yep. Oh
1: no, certainly, and and it's proven out in studies. And this is where it becomes sort of an Ouroboros where it's like, where does it start and where does it end? That women's likability ratings plunge you know and it's not just men who are holding holding those qualities against women it's other women right but you know if you're assertive if you're straightforward if you are more in your masculine that is that is deemed deeply undesirable um and makes people very uncomfortable and you will m- most likely be penalized for that so we're sort of in a double bind and um and we keep each other i think confined to that in a way where we really need to be processing how we're feeling about these things and opening and having open conversations about it and being honest about our feelings and where we feel stuck or threatened or small so that we can allow each other to sort of move and get out of this sort of scarcity mentality of like, there's only going to be one woman at the boardroom. There's only one woman on the throne. Only one woman will make it um, like we have to shatter that scar- scarcity m- mythology and mentality for each other um, and bring a friend, you know, and bring more friends because that's o- that's the only way that it's, it's really going to transform. And it's not that men are like kicking us out necessarily, or, you know, I've, ha- I've worked for really lovely men for the most part who have been um, fierce advocates for me and, and, and great mentors and wanted me to succeed. It's more that we, we just sort of slam the door on each other. Um, and it's not that men are necessarily going to willingly move aside, but like, we're not even making that ask or pushing for that so much as continuing to restrict who gets ac- w restrict which, which women get access. And in that way, that's sort of the invisible pa- That's when we act within the patriarchy. That's when we are. Sort of putting on its shrouds and and using it against other people. It's not a different, you know. And 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 to that end, I think we have this idea about politics and corporate culture where um, if more women are involved, everything will get better. And I think that that's true to some extent. I would. I think we really need a representative government. We really need representative businesses, but it's not enough because if it's the same sort of mentality it's the same energy then you just have in the same way that men can be sort of in their talks tox- it can be to- in their toxic masculine women can be in their toxic masculine too so you have you have women who are acting out of that same energy it's not the the systems won't change um i think it's allowing men to be in their feminine It's like, that's the balance that we need. It's not just a question of gender representation. It's a question of actually shifting the way that we hold ourselves and perceive each other.
0: I so agree with that, and I think that it is. It's when we talk about diversity, it's not just it's not a woman thing. It's it's a we thing. It's it, because you see quite often, it's you know, there's also there's men that stay home looking after the children while their wife will go and work. But you know, the other thing too that what I'm seeing, because I do a lot of women leadership uh, work, and I do see a lot of the narratives um, narratives that play out. It's something they get stuck in their stories. Uh, whatever those stories are. And I think sometimes it really takes a lot of of them to stand in their truth, in their power, be courageous enough to be vulnerable and say, hey, this is not okay or this is not, you know, once again, I think, and I'm relating this to myself, boundaries is the thing that keeps coming up for me because I think that when we don't have strong boundaries, um, we, uh, you know, and we let these narratives play out We are sort of teaching other people how to treat us. And I think that sometimes, you know, there's this thing of like, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want anyone to not like me, uh, whatever that may be. So um, I really relate to everything you were saying. And you actually mentioned the word hurdle before. So obviously through your writing and through your own experience, what have been some of your own hurdles?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think early on in my career, when I was in magazines um, and I was at Conde Nast, and I had a, um, I encountered a woman um, who was, uh, I don't like using the word, like who engaged in a lot of toxic behaviors. And she, I think, had a lot going on in her own life. Um, And, and, and she, sort of had it out for me. Um, and it was very scary. This was my first job. I was young. I was in my mid twenties. And she was was sort of looking for any opportunity to try to expose me or throw me under the bus. Or um it was really it was an odd situation. And there was really no oversight from like an HR perspective. And Um, and I was asked to sort of like go on the record as there were other problems with her. And then not only did nothing happen, but like she learned of my treachery and other people who felt were feeling really abused. Um, she learned of their treachery as well. And she went unchecked, if anything, sort of gained power. I ended up leaving that job because she, I, I was, um, terrified. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was having panic attacks. I, um, needed a job badly. Um, so I didn't, you know, there was no version living in New York where I could just go home or give up or, you know, I needed to figure it out. It took me a long time to find another job. Um, I think it took me six months and, um, um, which I think is normal and typical, but at the time, you know, I was it was it was really scary. And I learned from that a few things. One, you know, I it it created momentum in my career and I recognized that in order for things to change, like it's not star search. No one's gonna sort of come and pluck you out of the ether and give you a job. Like you have to be in motion in order to change things in your life like there's no no one's gonna save you there's no rowboat coming it is on you to sort of create the momentum in which to get to your next thing which was for whatever reason I might sound so silly but it was an epiphany for me where I was like oh this is on me and then but in the same way I was like I could feel the force of the universe supporting and helping me and the more I moved and the more sort of energy I put into the motion the more doors opened. The next thing I learned is that sometimes you really want something. I really wanted this job at New York Magazine that came available. I didn't get it. I was devastated. They actually ended up using some of the ideas for my ideas memo, which really made me mad, um, but didn't give me the job. And then I got a job shortly after at Time Out New York, which was sort of the like far less desirable magazine but ended up be- being one of my very favorite jobs. I learned so much. I could breathe again. It was it was everything that I needed. I was responsible for 14 pages a week, which when you go from editing like 5 pages a month is insane. Um and and so it was also sort of a good opportunity for me within media to go from a place that was like red hot where I had publicists all over me crawling all over me, which was never something I desired. Um, but to go to something that was far less glamorous and be like, oh, none of those people care. Like, they have completely forgotten me, save for a few people. That was a really good ego check as well as I began to maneuver through my career. So I had sort of this, like, um, if I if things are not okay, it is on me to take care of it. I need to take care of myself. And... Um, be on a more stable stool so that I don't get into this panic of like, Oh my God, my, my livelihood and my, my sanity and my safety is in the hands of someone who may not like me or might have something against me. So I need to have a bigger structure. That's when I started really ghostwriting in earnest so that I would always have another stream of income. And then this idea of like, I can't be dependent on being valued by other people for what I do at case in point, like this, this really joyful job is seemingly culturally irrelevant, but yet it's filling me up and I am having a really good time. And so I needed that. I'm glad to have had that check, um, early on in my career, because when I left, I, I went back to Condé Nast, I went back to Lucky Magazine, then I, um, went to Condé Nast Traveler within the building. And then I moved to Los Angeles for this very unglamorous digital job at this company called what's now called Connexity. And, but I knew I needed to do it. And I knew I needed to leave the golden handcuffs of a company like Condé Nast and go someplace that was seemingly irrelevant to learn really important skills for existing in today's media landscape. I needed to learn about the internet at scale. And it was, again, so fun like almost an inverse (laughs) inverse to sort of the glamour of Condé in terms of how much fun and actually how creative it felt and then I met and then I went to Goop from there Um, but when I got to Goop I was sort of in a really solid place of not needing to be valued by you know, PRs and other people and, and that I think created durability in me so that when, now that I'm no longer a group, I'm not tethered to anything that's going to bring me sort of like eminence or brand recognition or glory. Like, I don't care It that to me was not scary. I've been there before. Um, whereas I think, before, I think prior in my career, it would have felt like, like handcuffs and that I, by le- leaving something relevant, I myself was becoming irrelevant
0: too. Mm, that is so beautiful. For our listeners that probably have not heard or don't know much about goop, um did you want to just kind of high level explain what that sure. is because it is it, I find it's really I, I love the fact that it's a little bit uh you, you're you're tapping into topics that are probably uh challenging topics and topics that most people probably wouldn't even dare to deep dive into. So that that would have been a lot of um, fun to actually experience and experiment.
1: Yeah, it was really fun. Um, So for those who are unfamiliar, um, Goop is a lifestyle brand that was started by Gwyneth Paltrow in 2008. And it was just a basic newsletter um, that she started in her kitchen. And then she started doing sort of limited edition collaborations of products with different designers and I joined her in 2013. And um when she moved from London to Los Angeles and then spent the next seven years or so building the brand with her um, into sort of a a big lifestyle juggernaut um, that sort of had its roots in wellness, but came to be in a lot, it's very known for clean beauty. Um she makes skincare clothing um sells other people's products as well. And and while there, I led the content team. So we did um multiple newsletters. We've had a book imprint. I guess they have a book imprint. I don't know, I'm like, what tense do I use? Um I co-hosted the podcast with her for a number of years. We did a show with Netflix called the Goop Lab, which I sort of co-starred in. And um and then I left um, in October, October, 2020, which was the, of, of the first year of COVID. Now I can't believe we're in the second year, but, um, to do my own thing, I'm launching my own podcast in September and write my own book, which we've already talked about. So, um, but yeah, it was very like, particularly there are a lot of people in in Australia as well who pay attention to the site but and weirdly Australians I feel like are way ahead of us um and here in America in terms of wellness and different modalities but here in the United States we broke a lot of ground and started a lot of conversations and got a lot of attention um often for things that are related to women's reproductive health more or less um it's fascinating how touchy and how much of a trigger that continues to be in the culture. And, um, but yeah, it was really fun and it's so amazing to build something and to watch it grow and such a treat and to have so many eyeballs and, and people sort of paying attention to your work is, is also
0: quite special. And now it's your time uh, to do that for yourself, my <laughs> dearest. So the podcast, Pulling the Thread podcast. So what are we expecting or uh, for our listeners, what are they expecting to hear about this podcast? Podca- oh, can't even talk. Podcast. Podcast.
1: Um, yeah, so it's called Pulling the Thread. And for if anyone has listened to the good podcast, the form they'll recognize the format, which is essentially the most basic format there is conversation style and interviews, um, 45 minutes or so 45 minutes to an hour. I feel like only men feel like they can should, should talk for two hours or four hours or whatever it is. Um, so it's an efficient podcast and The focus is really on the big questions in life. Um, Why do we do what we do? How do we understand or how can we understand our experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context? How do we heal ourselves and the world? Um, It's really wide, which gives me an opportunity to interview everyone from someone like Brene Brown, to um Elizabeth Lesser, who started Omega Institute and wrote Broken Open and Cassandra Speaks and is one of, you know, wise women in the culture, to um BJ Miller on like da- dying and 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 palliative care and like how do we grow more how do we create more ease and comfort with the fact that we're all, our lives will end on this planet someday to, you know, conversations about the climate, all the things, but really trying to understand it um, in a less, not less polarized, like it's not a Pollyanna podcast, but I tend to be pretty open-minded. I really want to understand. I have a lot of curiosity about, um, about people and, and their systems, I want to say faith, because I hate the word belief. Um, I think that they're used interchangeably. But I love this Alan Watts quote, about faith and belief, where essentially, he's like, when you believe something, it's like you, you, you're clinging to a certainty that you know how things are, or how they should be, whereas faith is actually just like an opening up to the unknown, um, and an acceptance of the uncertainty of life. So I really like that word. Yeah, I I really like people. And I feel like there are, there's so much more that we have in common than we don't, you know, obviously, we're seeing extreme politics all over the globe, which makes sense at this time of such uncertainty. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And um, but I want to, you know, I feel like our survival, we're sort of in the midst of a test, like, can we come together and and synergistically solve these big problems that face us all or are we going to you know sit and point fingers and try and tear each other apart and so i hope to have conversations that are you know inclined toward healing and understanding and um you know, I t- the people who listen sort of like can take my seat. I try and I do a lot of prep and I try and ask the questions that they would ask if they were sitting across from, you know, a, an Ibram X. Kendi or um, trying to think of the people on the Goop podcast, a Marianne Williamson or um, whomever, you know, um, Brian Stevenson, trying to think of people who would be more familiar Um to Australians but but it doesn't matter these these are conversations that like aren't bound I think by nationality or that that would be my hope
0: Mm, I love it I I love it and it's it, there's so much variety, which is nice. You know, some podcasts, they just kind of look after, look through, it's just like a theme and uh, and yeah. that's what they kind of like deep dive into. I find too, as you were talking about that, I think that's not spoken about enough and I think that it's something that's really bubbled up for me. Um, it's work that I've been doing for a little while, I'm really doing the shadow work. And it's one of those things that people shun away from it. But I think that we're kind of all been faced to lean into our shadow. Um yes. because
1: since the since, shadow is essential. Oh, it's like it our is. Best friend.
0: It yes. is. And yes, people like every time I say I'm gonna do a workshop on the shadow or talk about the shadow, they're like, Oh, we don't want to get into the dark things.
1: Oh, which is so which is a problem because I think we've become so binary yeah. where we're like you're good or you're bad you know, you there's light and there's dark. And we've created all these constructs, like you're on the right side or the wrong side. And Mm. it's like, no, like that is you are there is no light without darkness, like these polarities, like you can eat and you will excrete, like you can't have we have to stop pretending like we can exist only in the light or only consume and not look at our waste. You know, it's this, this lack of this rejection of the polarity, which is making us so sick and off, you know, out of cycle and unbalanced. And this spiritual teacher of mine, she was like, you know, the shadow and like this whole idea of like kill your ego. And, you know, it's like, no, just like make sure you have a, a right relationship with your ego. And she talks about the shadow as the pace setter. And I love that. It's like when your shadow flares, when your shadow kicks up, it's like trying to keep you safe. And it might be trying to slow you down um, or sort of prepare you for whatever is coming. But it is a friend. It's like, it's not not to be shunned. It's not to be excluded. It's not to be denied. Um, I'm so glad you do shadow work. It drives me nuts when Mm -hmm. people want to believe that they can be only good or only
0: light. Yeah, and it's not, it's not, it's funny. It's like when you. I always say when you shun light on the shadow uh, or your blind spots, once it's seen, it's hard to unsee. And I think that a lot of the times, and this is going back to I see a lot of women in this uh, where they don't want to own certain parts of themselves or they don't want to see or or accept or acknowledge. And so, you know, and it's not a bad thing. It could be as simple as, oh, wow, you are really good at this. And, And that in itself, it's saying that you are also good at this. Um, why don't yeah. you embrace it? Why don't you dance with it? And I think that it's not negative, if anything. It's about tapping into these uh, untapped talents and gifts and potentials. And that is the shadow work for me.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it goes to sort of my my book idea, which was sort of sparked by this comment from Lori Gottlieb, who wrote, maybe you should talk to someone, she's a psychotherapist, where she was like, envy Um, envy shows us what we want. I always tell my clients to look at their envy and envy shows you what you want. And then we were talking about how that's gendered typically, because she's like, women have so much shame about feelings that they think are not acceptable. Because back to the shadow, it's like when, and this good girl conditioning and, and whatnot, when we feel like we're being bad or like when there's behavior that we exhibit that we think is immoral or wrong or not. Okay. It's like, we we shun it we shut it down we are like you are back in the closet and it's it's all shadow stuff right it is part of our humanity and until we can sort of open the door and be like it's okay like come out I need to like understand you reconcile you recognize that I'm gonna do shitty things sometimes because that's sort of what's part of being alive and and instead of denying those parts that those parts of us exist like denying that they exist doesn't mean it's not real. And which is also, I think, this weird cultural moment that we're in. It's like, you can not you can pretend, you know, here in America. It's like, sure, you can um, deny that the election is is uh, you can deny the validity of the election and the election is still real. And Biden is still our president. Like, like, I don't know if that makes sense, but
0: absolutely. Just because
1: you don't want something to be true doesn't make it untrue.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> you know, and once again, that goes back to those narratives. We get stuck in those narratives, right? They, or I, I call them repeating patterns. And, you know, this could be as simple as that's another way to identify your shadow is what are these uh, patterns that keep showing up in your life? Um, yeah. You know, it could be like, what are the parts about you that you dislike, judge or fear um, and, you know, and then how do you then, you know, embrace that? I, I always say dance with the shadow. How do you accept them completely and not abandon your shadow? It's, it's Your shadow is not your foe. Yeah. It's actually your friend.
1: It is your friend. And curiosity is like your, is, is so required. It's like, it and a little bit of resilience or durability to sort of sit with it and and excavate it and understand it. And I'm glad you brought up patterns too because I think, so much of what we're experiencing collectively are inherited, you know, generational patterns. Right. And some of them are very tactical in the way that they've been passed down in systems that are not necessarily equal that we didn't create, but we might benefit from or not benefit from. But, um, the same way that, you know, now they recognize that trauma impacts our genes and it's, there's an epigenetic, plane to trauma. Right. And so I think what also happens in terms of stories and shadow work is we carry things that are not ours. And on. so we, we get into this position where sometimes you're like, I don't know why I have this irrational need to, um, why I'm convinced that I'll never be safe or secure. I'll never have enough money. Like there's no rational explanation for that in my own life. And sometimes it's like it's your grandmother's and mm-hmm. the reason you can't parse it process it or move past it is because you're trying to make it make sense and it's not it's just a pattern that you are holding onto that's been passed on to you and like you have to let it go it doesn't even belong to you.
0: Mm, and that that takes a lot of uh, a level of self awareness cuz all of these un uh, contest patterns they really were imposed or imprinted at a very in our development phase and quite often we behave in certain ways we're not even aware of uh, you know because these patterns they play out any all these narratives or programs they play out anything between 95 to 98 percent of the time and of our day but if we were to act you know I would say stand back and be the observer of your life you can actually see the narrative play out and you it, it's really interesting how then you can actually say, is this mine? And the difference is, yes, these these have been conditioned, uh, you know, as part of our development years, but then it's what you do with it as an adult. You don't have to continue yeah. to carry things that no longer serve you.
1: Yeah. And I think that we also get uh, have been sort of acculturated to this idea that progress or moving through these things is necessarily hard and requires a lot of work and effort. And sometimes all that you need, ironically, is like some light on it, right? Is just to look at it and that can clear it. And so it doesn't necessarily, because I think what I've also observed is like, we can stagnate in our stories or get stuck in them in a way that's not helpful. Um, And it doesn't mean that you have to like obsess about these things. Sometimes it's like just bringing them to awareness, like bringing them into your conscious awareness is enough for them to exit stage. Right. And, um, and then you, you know, you can move on, but I think that what happens when we leave them and let them sort of stay in the cellar is that they can make a lot of noise and then we, and then project them onto other people. You know, it's that, you know, the classic saying, traumatize people, traumatize people, healed people, heal people. And I think that what, what's happening now is like a lot of us are acting out of our wounds and it's reactive and it's hurtful. And we're taking it very personally in part because like, it's tender. We can't, we, we're not like, we're not, cause we won't look at it. Like we won't air it out. We won't heal it. We won't process it. And so it's like, we're sore everywhere.
0: Mm, it is true and I always say like whatever is going on in, in your internal world you know I say perception is projection. If you're not happy with your environment if you're not happy happy with what's going on around you then it's up to you to make that change. You can't change other people and I know that this has been tough for a lot of people who've been stuck at home with partners and and so forth um, but you can definitely change yourself. You can change the way that you see, the way that you think, the way that you feel and thus will change the way that you behave and then your results will change because of that so yes I think that a level of self-awareness where you can catch it you know because these are unconscious patterns and programs but as soon as you can catch it you bring it forward into your consciousness your conscious mind and go I see you I see you and once you can see it you can then decide what are you going to do with it you call it out and give it a name whatever it is oh this is guilt Right, and as soon as yep. you you actually um, identify and give it a name, um, you know, and separate yourself from it, then then you can actually do the work and go, okay, what do I choose to do with this? Do I choose mm-hmm. to allow this to run its course and run my life, or do I che- choose to give it a different meaning and change the narrative and therefore change my results? Yeah, so the power sits absolutely. within us.
1: No, totally. And it's the ways in which we respond to the world. It's as much as we'd like to put it all on sort of what the world does to us. Um, And I don't mean that to sound Pollyannish either, but it's like, it's life is a lot, it's it's better. It's easier to do life with some equanimity or some ability to control the way that you respond to these outside factors. And instead, otherwise you feel sort of like an unmoored boat being pushed around in a way that's... um, That's not helpful, you know. But if you, the more you can sort of reclaim your agency and take responsibility for yourself and be like, I'm just going to be in the river and I'm going to just, I'm going to not fight the current and not get stuck in eddies and just try and have sort of this take, take what comes and have some equanimity about it. I think it's a lot more tolerable than like the struggling against the current and fighting what is, you know.
0: Mm it's it's what you're saying I got this picture of like really I always talk about when there's emotions Um, And we hang on to them. We're not allowing them to flow through, and so we keep them stuck. We're Mm. we're embodying these emotions, and and which is good. But you don't want to hang on to them too tightly. You want to allow them to pass through. So I would say, you know, it's like it's like sitting by a riverbank, right? And you're watching these emotions go. You can be the observer of them. Go, "Mm, interesting. You know, why is this coming up? But you know, I think it's also what you talk about is that regardless of the event, which we've all experienced, the event over the last last couple of years well in our second year I should say <laughs> although it feels like it's been a lot longer uh we can't control that but we can control how we respond to it and Absolutely. I think that makes a big difference it's, it's about okay this is taking place now what do I do that's within my control yeah and not not yeah. not so much what's what's not within my control
1: or as my friend Jennifer would say like let it come in you don't have to offer it tea. like you know it's doesn't need to stick around and stay for a while, but like let those emotions, let them come. That's and right. <laughs> don't entertain them for for hours, but um,
0: let them in. Absolutely. And I mean, when your emotions come up, they they they're coming up. There's a purpose. Every emotion has its purpose. And once we can i, did, I give it, give it a voice, okay, okay, what's your purpose here today? Well, I want to be seen, I wanna be heard, whatever that may be. Um, then, then you're not, you're allowing it to, to pass through. But it's when it's like, oh, and then you start judging it and why well, shouldn't be feeling this way? Well, this doesn't feel right or whatever that may be, then we're actually not allowing it to flow through and, and keeping it, you know, we're kind of like keeping it stuck and we can carry that for, you know, a very long time depending on yeah. the, the, the strength of the emotion. Totally. So Elise, in your most adventurous life, what has been like your biggest lesson that you've learned thus far?
1: Mm, God, that's such a, oh, I mean, I think the biggest lesson has been um, my, it's a lesson, a gift, a, a really hard thing was my brother's husband and my best friend died in his sleep when he was 39. So this is a few years ago he went to bed at his older brother's after his older brother's wedding and didn't wake up. He he had a undiagnosed rare heart disease and, um, his death, it was so, it was like the worst aside from losing, you know, my own children. It was like the incomprehensible to me that he was gone. Um, but it, it did a couple of, it, it it's ended up i found the gift in it i guess i would give anything obviously to have him physically here but he gave his passing gave me a much wider Spiritual context, and it sort of forced me into what has been like consuming question for me since. Which is kind of maybe it's silly that it didn't occur to me to wonder or question before. But like, what is? What's the point? And like, what are we doing here? And what is? It, it, what is on the other side of the veil? What is consciousness? Like, what is energy? Um, in a way that's really given meaning and structure to this stage of my life and i talk to him all the time i feel incredibly connected to him i feel like he helps me every day from with the minutia and the big stuff um and it's given me in some ways a a sort of unprecedented backbone and the other thing on a practical level is and covid certainly um, brought this up for me watching sort of people's reaction, particularly at the very beginning and sort of the toilet paper hoarding days was, wow, people are really scared of death. I always knew that and I get it, but it was really wild to sort of see it on such a large scale as they were, you know, hoarding goods as like a bulwark towards an invisible virus. Um, that this fear of death and this belief or the uh, uncertainty, um, that it was like the first time that people were allowing in this idea that they could die. And it was terrifying people and bringing them to their knees in a way that I thought was, I mean, and, and a lot of people have died. I'm not diminishing people's fear, but it's like that Joseph Campbell quote, which I need to write down because I I have no quote recall, and so I always butcher everyone's quotes. But essentially, he's like the only way to joy is through accepting and allowing death, and like really the only way to live is to recognize that you will die, and like I really feel that way. I'm not scared of death, and in a way that I've found incredibly liberating, and I and I think it's like an imperative. I think that's part of what COVID is teaching us is that we must accept that life is not an up, you know, to the right and up event. It is a cycle. We are part of nature. We are not outside of it. Um, we need to start, um, revering the cycle, honoring the cycle, um, not, not living as though this will never end. Um, and that with that, like there will be an abatement of fear, collective fear, and also maybe a chance for renewal and like a more reciprocal and right relationship with each other and with nature and more reverence, honestly, for our elders, including older women who I think have been completely kicked out. Like the crone is gone. Um, but I think we need we need to bring her back in and and start to... Honor the cycles of life again. That was a really strange answer, but hopefully there was something in there.
0: Oh, absolutely. It made <laughs> me think of the book, The Seed of the Soul by Gary uh, Zukov. I don't no, know if Zukav? you've heard it. Yes. Of course. Oh, it's amazing New and book it's like, coming out to me it's like it's life and death they I mean you know one it's it's energy just transforms it's not an ending it's just it's it's never an ending it's just going from one to another and, and another it's a transition or a transforming it's not ending and I mean you you explain it beautifully because you still experience that energy and that essence of that very individual which is so beautiful but yeah when you're talking about it I just thought about the seed of the soul which is for our listeners, I highly recommend the book. It's amazing.
1: He has a new book called Universal Human. I haven't read it yet, but I know I think it just um, just came out. So oh. I'm sure we should read it. Yeah, I'm sure it's we great. should
0: read it. Oh, I'm going to check it out 100%. So, Elise, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you, my dearest? Curious. Oh, I love that. I, I would uh, highly recommend that that's uh, one that we should we should all um, dabble with a little bit or dance with a little bit more, I think, with a uh, curious mindset and ask those curious questions. And then the last question that we love to ask our women of inspiration is to share three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today. And they could be like three practical exercises for our audience.
1: Okay. I, I, I prepared these, so I'm ready and I'll keep them short. Okay. One, make a budget and articulate wants versus needs. Um, because in my experience and in talking to sort of spiritual teachers and healers who work with a lot of women, we are very, we are very breathless about this idea of not having enough. And, and then when that next question of what is enough, comes up, there's no answer. And so for me at the beginning of COVID and when I left Goop, I really needed to define that. What what is what do I need? And what do I want? And I found that I there are very few things I wanted that I didn't have. And I found that I could meet my needs and the needs of my family like a lot more easily than I was letting myself believe. And so writing it down is I think like a solve for the soul. Um So that's one exercise. I I just do it in an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's like it's very therapeutic. Um, Another nugget comes from the spiritual teacher, this woman, Krissa Schumacher, who I work with, who told me um, once, and I can't let it go, that your vibration must be higher than what you create. Otherwise, you cannot manage it. And I think this is applicable to every layer of life in the personal, at work, sort of globally. Um, and I think that it's it goes to our earlier conversation of like self-management and um, sort of getting above it, getting your head above the water. Like your head doesn't have to be above the clouds. It just has to be above water so that you can manage what you're trying to create and just to be conscious of what you're trying to create and whether you can manage it. Um, and then the third, another Chris Nugget, um, uh, where and I found this in my life to be true, that when the moments when I or the moments or the spans of time, when I do not leave room or space for myself and for silence and stillness, um, room is made on my behalf and things start to get canceled, whether it's relationships, jobs, opportunities, trips, like you name it, like the space will be made unless you make it for yourself.
0: Oh, I love that. I love all of them. that last one. Really. I felt like an etheric slap, Elise. That really resonated with me, that one. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, I'm a, still a I'm still
1: punch in the face. That's what yeah. I'm wow. <laughs> that was
0: amazing. I love all three. Thank you so, so much. So, Elise, where is the best place for our listeners to find you?
1: So, um, my podcast will be up in September. It's called Pulling the Thread. You can find it on any po- podcast platform. I have a website, Elise Lunen. It's L O E H N E N dot com, where I write occasional blog posts, and I intend one day to send a newsletter. Someday, I'm gonna get around to it. Or on Instagram, Elise Lunen. I have a Twitter, but I I never check it. So, um, but you can find me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. And if you Google it, I'll probably be the. It's a a rare, strange name invented by my my grandfather so it's not a competitive space you will find me if you google me
0: I love it and you know uh for our listeners before we got on the show I said to Elise uh it's a very authentic name it's almost got a European feel so I too was very inquisitive about the name so um uh it's a beautiful (laughs) name so Elise I can't thank you enough to come on the show we'll have all those links uh in the show notes I want to say thank you for your time your energy and your wisdom. It's been absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show and I'm sure our listeners are going to reach out.
1: Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure on my
0: end as well. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please share the show with your friends to help us make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes or Please subscribe to the show. The more subscribers, the better the speakers for the show, which then means more value for you, so that together we can help the world become a better place. Don't give it another thought. Hit that subscribe button and help people get their weekly lessons. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at Katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Plano. Until next week, please take care of yourself. Much love and gratitude. Thank you.